Welcome to Psychocinematic, the podcast where we analyse depictions of mental illness and disability in popular film and TV. Before we start, this podcast is not designed to be therapeutic, prescriptive or constitute a formal diagnosis for any listener. For a longer version of this disclaimer, please check the episode notes on your podcast app. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast today, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their enduring connection to the land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to 2022, Michael Watson. Hello, welcome back. It's been a while since podcast recordings. It's It's been a minute. It's been a minute? It's been a minute, that's what they say, right? It's been a minute. <laughs> Did you have a good break? Um, yeah, it was good to have a little break from podcasting and also working. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Did you have much of a break, Michael? Yeah, I had a bit of a break. Yeah. How is life as a real true doctor? Uh, no, nah, it's good. It's an honour and a privilege. An honour and a privilege. Um, so since we last met, is there anything we're watching at the moment? What have I watched? What would you like? I w- I've watched a few episodes of the bloody fucking Boba Fett show. <laughs> I've heard that's really bad. It's not very good. <laughs> no, I liked, uh, I liked The Mandalorian as a guilty pleasure, but this is just kind of shit, unfortunately. I won't watch it. No. Mm-mm. And I watched Glenn, Gary Glenn Ross. Oh, yeah. What did you think? Um, oh, you wouldn't bloody make that movie nowadays. <laughs> it's uh, very man. It's very much a man. A man. A movie about men. So I won't like it. Um, it's kind of funny. Al Pacino is really good in it. It's worth a watch. Fuck mm. you. Um, you said to me the other day, Succession's ruined TV for you. It has. Uh, just I'm, just, I'm just sick of TV. Yeah, I feel like there's heaps I want to watch, but either... Just don't have the time to really get sucked into it, or um, I forget that I want to watch it. Yeah. Watching Married at First Sight, though. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> yeah I've, you I've seen your videos. Yeah. Um. But we're missing it tonight to bring you this episode. But yeah, anyone who's listening and isn't aware, I'm doing little recaps through my stories on Instagram of how how Married at First Sight is a very bad show for, for many reasons, but lots of focus on how the psychologists who are actual psychologists in the show really fuck things up so and is this with the goal of getting them deregistered from opera i don't think i will have the power to do that i think you're i think you're starting a grassroots movement to Uh, um get john aitken booted well given the flick there's there's been contestants who've tried to do that already and they haven't succeeded really yeah They've actually made complaints to APRA. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, wow. Which is why now they can't call themselves psychologists on the show anymore. What, do they just call themselves experimenters or something? Experts. Relationship oh, experts. okay. Yeah, which is right. still, like, much I mean, on what really... grounds are you an expert? Yeah. Like, because I did my psychology you training. you studied psychology and mm. that's your career. Mm. Maybe Check. I should start referring to myself as an expert on this podcast. Okay. Instead of... A... <laughs> You know, you got to watch some trash, but what's the really high quality, you know, prestige show that you're watching at the moment? <laughs> Just like that, <laughs> which is even more trash. No, I'm actually not really watching anything prestigious, but and just like that is so bad. Like, but Sex in the City is so bad too, but, but it's it, still good. But at, for its time, people didn't think it was bad. But now, what they've created now, no one likes. 
I have watch to... it. We're watching it. So we don't <laughs> like it. I have to say, as a Sex and the City fan, I knew it was shit back then. Yeah. But I still really liked it. But you were a snob back then, too. What does that mean? You've always been a snob through and through. It's what I, it's what I like about you. But what does that have to do with Sex and the City? But most people who liked it weren't snobs. They got snobby through time and experience. <laughs> but you were always a snob. Right, okay. <laughs> sure. Jeez. This is what I uh, live with every day. This is our therapy, everyone. This abuse. So what are we opening up with this year? A big a big disorder. A big disorder. That um, there's not a lot of movies about, but there's a lot of... Discussion? Stigma? Bipolar disorder. <laughs> That's how you say it. Bipolar. Yeah, we're doing two episodes on bipolar disorder your hot little ears and I'm very excited to be talking to someone for the next episode about uh, Touch With Fire uh, and a new guest on the show, Jossie Williams. I'm so excited and today we will be talking about Silver Linings Playbook. SLP. SLP and I picked these two because I don't like one and I like the other. Tag both and don't tell them which is which. Which one do you reckon? Um, but I, I do feel that one is very Hollywood. Dramatization has some very big stereotypes in it. I wonder which one you think that might be. And the other one I think is, from my understanding, more true to life with more lived experience in it and less Hollywoody. Um, and I thought we could kind of compare the pair. Yeah. So before we start going into the movie, can you tell us a little bit about like your background? Because you've done some research on bipolar disorder, which is why you're still doing this one with me today. Because <laughs> I'm trying to get more lived experience in my podcast episodes. Well, my lived experience was in a research Capacity. facility. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I don't have uh, bipolar. Um, but no, I did some research over the last few years um, about risk of bipolar as opposed to bipolar itself. Mm -hmm. Um, Psychiatry in the last, like, 20 years or so has shifted towards trying to pick when people are going to develop severe mental illnesses like bipolar and schizophrenia and treating them before they get it as opposed to treating them after they get it. So more preventative early interventions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did um, research into the, like, social and occupational functioning of people at risk of bipolar, usually people with a family history of it, um, and compared them with either people without bipolar or people with an actual diagnosis of bipolar. Mm-hmm. And I'm, pl- I'm pleased <laughs> to, to announce, you hear, you're hearing it first, oh, good listeners. This is unpublished. See, this is why we give you the good shit. In press, that people at risk of bipolar have worse functioning than people without bipolar and better functioning than people with bipolar. So it sounds like there's a spectrum of functioning depending on whether you're not bipolar, at risk of bipolar, and bipolar. Exactly. Sounds but like a reasonable correlation. It sounds very intuitive. You might guess that that's the case, but we proved it. <laughs> well, um, but maybe this is interesting to 
psychocinemaniacs out there. Maybe it isn't. But it seems like some people at risk of bipolar function really well, like better than quote-unquote healthy controls. Hmm, And um, so there are different subgroups. Can I propose something? Yeah. Is it because you usually only get diagnosed with bipolar when you've gone through an extremity of it, such as a manic phase or a depressive phase? Yeah, well, you, you you get diagnosed with bipolar after mania, pretty much, yeah. but most people start with a depressive episode. Uh-huh. And so if the people at risk that have not been diagnosed with bipolar might have some of the what are considered, you know, traits of bipolar that aren't, that don't impact on functioning or are not at a functionally impacting level, which can be quite positive traits. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it, you, you know, I can't, I can't you're not, cite. You haven't and, done that research. Yet. No, and I can't <laughs> cite really any objective evidence. But I mean, there's stuff out there saying that people at risk of bipolar, as in who have parents with bipolar, um, do better at school. Oh, interesting. Um, things like that, and yeah, you can totally mm-hmm. hypothesize that it's because they need slightly less sleep and they do slightly more goal directed things mm-hmm. and. They're more sociable, but to a to a you know functional functionally advantageous degree. Mm-hmm, interesting. Anyway, anyway, not to harp on about. But Shep, it's my life. Why don't we tell everybody what bipolar is? Yeah, good call. Good call. So bipolar is kind of a spectrum. So like from less to severe to most severe, you go cyclothymic disorder, bipolar two, and then bipolar one, um, and they're. Mood disorders? Mood disorders, yes. In the sense that I guess the, the typical thing for to diagnose bipolar is mania. I mean, we could go through all the criteria, but mania is essentially like a state of um, really high energy. It can be euphoria. It can be agitation. Irritability. Yeah. Yep. Um, it can involve psychosis in some cases, it involves sometimes uh, more goal-oriented behaviour, more risk-taking behaviour, needing less sleep, difficulties with your thinking and talking where you think and talk a lot. And very fast. Yeah, fast and tangential and difficult to make sense of to an observer. Um, and basically, so so bipolar 1 is when if you've ever had an episode of mania... Um, that's lasted a week, I think, and it's been sufficient to um, severely impact on like your day-to-day functioning, going to work, um, having a, you know interacting with your family and friends or whatever. Bipolar two is like that, but you have had a hypomanic episode, which is basically mania, um, but uh, not hitting the seven days. It needs to be four days, um, and. Uh, yeah, it's just a toned down version of mania really. And it may still impair your functioning, but not as, not not severely. And then cyclothymia is, yeah, basically fluctuating moods between depression and hypomania. It has to go, be going for like two years. Like it's one of those, it's probably more a diagnosis of exclusion really, where you're like, okay, you've got these manic symptoms, but you're not quite bipolar. We'll call you cyclothymic. Yeah, they don't quite meet the criteria fully for hypermania or depression. But yeah. they are on the cusp. Yes, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. 
Um, and of course, I, I should I should all... just say as well, like mania is you know a big part of the um, diagnosis, but there's there's also um, depression. Uh, like people are either normal mood or depressed or or manic, mm. um, and it, the cycles are usually a few months. So most people with bipolar one probably untreated would only have one or two manic episodes a year. Mm-hmm. I think is normal. Yeah, and yeah. In between those times, they can go into a, a depression as well. Mm-hmm. I just want to clarify too, with psychothermic disorder, I'm sure that people listening to this podcast are probably diagnosing themselves with it because oh, it, yeah. it sounds quite like arbitrary in a way, but it also has its own exclusion criteria, so it can't be explained by any other diagnoses. And yeah, a psychiatrist will make that call. I mean, Sometimes yeah. we're all a little bit psychothermic, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, everybody's thought that they're manic at some point. Yeah. I've thought thought that. Any DSM diagnosis needs to impair functioning, more or less. Like, you know, most of them. Um, And that's the big, that's the big, that's the clincher. The movie. The movie. The movie is by David O. Russell, and he loves a quirky but popular Oscar Beatty film. Bloody loves it. They always have prominent uh, soundtracks too. Ah, Three Kings, I haven't seen it. But you know who was in that movie? Who? Friggin' um, Spike Jones was in Three Kings. Ah. He was like an actor in Three Kings. Yeah. Does he act a lot? Nah. Not really? Not really. Huh. Well, good for him. Um, He did I Heart Huckabees, which I love. Not Why? Just because, because it's got Jason, Jason Schwartzman's moustache in it. It's funny. And then The Fighter, American mm, Hustle. Fodging you know. movie. American Hustle was shit. Just for the record. Um, But guess what? He was the executive producer for Anchorman. One of the greatest movies ever made. Literally. Um, And he's also, you know, he calls himself an auteur, which raises a little red flag for me. He calls himself an auteur. Himself an auteur. Okay, what are his? Okay, fuck off. (laughs) I think because he writes, produces, and directs, like he does all three. Um, like maybe if he'd made a few more I Heart Huckabees, he could get away with that. I don't think we but need like, any more. He just <laughs> like you're not an auteur, auteur when you're just fucking Wes Anderson times fucking Michelle Gondry. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, and Jennifer Lawrence is like a little bit of a muse to him. She's been in like three of his movies, and the film is based on a book by Matthew Quick, and he also wrote The English Patient, which I haven't seen and don't wish to see. All right, Pat Patrizio has been released from an institution against doctor's orders after eight months. He was admitted after bashing up his wife's lover almost to death and the court sentenced him to be in the institution. He was diagnosed with bipolar at this time. His long-suffering mum brings him home to stay with the family. Where Jackie Weaver! Jackie Weaver! He's coming home with his mum and his neurotic Philadelphia Eagles NFL obsessed dad. Robert De Niro! Robert De Niro! Bobby Aussie bloke! <laughs> Get on your mate. Um, he's been setting up a gambling sort of, I don't know, ring? He's a bookkeeper now. Maker. Maker? <laughs> Bookmaker? With friends to make a living after he lost his job. Pat immediately starts to try to win back his wife. Uh, by trespassing, trying to study all of her teaching syllabus, because she's a teacher, trying to get his old high school job back, and, of course, refusing to take his medication. 
but his wife has a restraining order out against him. And everyone is telling him that the relationship is over, she's sold the house, she's done. But he believes they're still in love. And there's a you know subplot that the song that was playing when he found her cheating is a huge trigger for him that sends him into a spiral, which was the, also their wedding song. His dad wants him to watch the Eagles game with him because he believes that Pat is a good luck charm. And his dad's super fixated on that. So his best friend invites him to dinner and his best friend is having a bit of a crisis as well, drowning in his job and his marriage and being a new dad. Uh, and at the dinner, he meets Tiffany, who is his friend's wife's sister. She appears to have some sort of mental health issues herself and is still grieving her husband who died in a car accident. They have a connection. And while she propositions him, he refuses, which causes a major outburst at home um, when he comes home. And while his psychiatrist the next day encourages him to be friends with her, they go on a date and Tiffany offers to get a letter to his wife for him. And she also admits to having had sex with everyone in the office after her husband died, which he later uses to sort of slut shame her, which causes a big weird scene that I don't really want to talk about because I hate it. <laughs> Skip a few. She agrees to deliver a letter to Nikki, the, his wife, if he participates in a dance thing, which is a routine for a competition at the Ben Franklin building. <laughs> There's a montage. They do a lot of dancing and they're obviously falling for each other. He's getting better sleep, spending lots of time doing stuff looking like he's stable he gets a letter back from nikki which says please show me that you're ready to be in this marriage then his dad he's not happy with this bobby d's not happy with this <laughs> because he's not spending time watching games with him to help his bookie luck so he has a big sob at him <laughs> <laughs> pat goes to a game for him because his dad is banned from attending games due to violence um and his dad has put all his money on this game during which he meets and hangs out with his psychiatrist, <laughs> which is a problem, who then gets beaten up by a bunch of racist fucks. And they all get arrested. The Eagles lose. Tiffany, though, saves the day by making the next game double or nothing because suddenly she knows everything that's going on in this family. And then the dad decides that if they get a score of five at this dance competition and the Eagles score the game, then it's double or nothing. That is what's apparently called a parlay. I don't understand. Yeah, it's a parlay. I don't know what those things mean. And coincidentally, both the game and the dance are on at the same time. Oh, my God. He doesn't want to do it, but then Tiffany is seen to have been in cahoots with the family and suggests they tell him that Nikki's going to be at the dance. And then he will do it. Pat then realises that Tiffany wrote the letter from Nikki herself, but he agrees to do the dance and doesn't say anything. The game and dance day arrive. The Eagles win the game. Woohoo! Nikki actually shows up to the dance thanks to her sister and her husband, which upsets Tiffany who gets drunk immediately. But Pat shows up and makes her do the dance. They do it. It's a very David O. Russell, like, cringy, cringy, cringe dance. <laughs> and then they get an average of five. Woohoo! Pat goes and talks to Nikki and Tiffany leaves in a huff. But then Pat leaves, goes to find Tiffany. He finds her, gives her a letter saying he loves her. And kissy, kissy, happy family, the end. There's also a Chris Tucker subplot, which I can't remember and I don't. <laughs> Amazing. Jeez, what a complex <sighs> film. I learnt a lot about gambling. I learnt nothing. I don't understand any of it. All right. So, okay, that's the movie. I mean, everybody's, I'm sure everyone's it was, seen it. It was a, it was it was a phenomenon. Day. It was Oscar, drowned in Oscars. <laughs> Open the batting with... Lived experience. Category um, one. Category yeah. is... What do you want to bet? What do you want to bet that there's some lived experience in this movie? Yeah, well, so tell, tell us. Tell us all about it. 
I have a problem with David O. Russell. <laughs> okay, wow. <laughs> and I just got a, got a vibe about him. So. It, is it because of American Hustle? <laughs> it's because of a few. But just before I, pr- I talk about David O. Russell, I just want to tell you that he was actually um, accused of sexually assaulting his 19-year-old trans niece. I don't know why they need to say that she's trans, but anyway. Um, the alleged assault wasn't witnessed by police, so the case was closed without any charges. And this happened in 2011. Wait. Nothing came of that. The assault wasn't witnessed by police. Like, I don't know what that means. Aren't, like, the vast majority of crimes not witnessed by police? You would think that would be the case, and it wouldn't mean the case is closed. (laughs) Isn't that the whole point of court, that you need... (laughs) Okay, right. Um, all right. Yeah, that's So, you know, it's just a bit fishy. It's just a bit fishy. Super fishy. I'm sure there's more to it, but I just have a vibe. And I just have a vibe about him in general. What does he look like? Does he look like a creep? He looks like he thinks he's hot shit. But is he? I don't know. But anyway. (laughs) Sorry. Let me tell you about his introduction to this movie. Yeah. He read the book and it inspired him because he was so familiar with the issues in the story that he knew how emotional and funny and original it could be as a movie. Um, and it, but what, but what, how is he familiar with the issues? Because his son has been diagnosed with bipolar. Oh, right. Apparently he was originally diagnosed with autism as a toddler and he went to a school, a special education boarding school, um, when he was younger. Um, and then over the years, the diagnosis was changed according to many articles. It's all a bit, the timeline's a bit weird, but it was changed to a bipolar obsessive compulsive disorder hybrid. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the articles, what they said. Okay. So. Sorry, I'm only laughing because that just doesn't sound very DSM. No, it's um, not. But I'm so sure it it's just being lost in translation. Dual diagnosis yeah. of bipolar and OCD. Yeah. So there was this like video of David O. Russell talking about it in like a, a premiere with his son there and the son is his son is actually in the film as that kid that knocks on the door and asks to interview Pat. Oh yeah, right. Someone with bipolar for That storyline never really school. goes anywhere, does it? It's just made for playful laughs. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um so yeah, I just watched this little clip of him sort of talking about the movie and he doesn't like talk over his son, but I feel like his son's just kind of there to be like, see, lived experience. Look, yeah. My son has gone through this. It's been really hard for us. Um, I guess this is a, this movie is like a little bit more recent than some of the other ones that we've done. So things were starting to get towards like, maybe you shouldn't just go ahead and colonize people with mental illness as a neurotypical yeah. You know, and, yeah. And and admittedly until Sears music came out <laughs> which set us oh, this back is nothing 20 years. like <laughs> But yeah, um well that's like I guess something this just sounds like um I remember when we were doing maybe me before you. No, no, it was when we were doing music actually. Um and there's all all this material online about, you know, the 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 experience of being the parent of somebody with autism. Mm-hmm. and they make it all about them yeah. and it's not about the the kid with autism it's all about my struggle as a parent and yeah stuff. this kind of smells like that to me it is a little bit too because i'll read out some other things he said and look you know i could be read i could be reading it all wrong um and it's important to note that lots of bipolar um advocacy groups really love this movie so mm. there's that mm. um but russell has said that his son was very volatile and unpredictable 
like everything would be going great and then suddenly he'd explode. There would be lots of tears and his mother and I wouldn't know why or how to control it. But no one feels worse about it than they do when they snap out of it and realise what's happened. They're so sorry and humbled. When he was 12, Matthew, his son, um, David and Russell put him in Devereux Glen Home School, a boarding school that specialises in children with mental disorders, which sounds really awful. Mm. Um, he said, it's the hardest decision I ever made, but it has changed my life, he says. His life. <laughs> that would have been awful if he said, it's changed my life as a dad. Um, no, it's changed his life. At school, there's a whole behavioural structure and program that he sticks to every day, but I know that the school is a protective environment and one day he'll have to step out into the real world. And I worry about that. So I made this film for him. I want him to know that he's part of this world. We're all part of it. What are your thoughts? I'm just like, um, imagine how guilty, like, how guilty we feel sending Casper to daycare for, <laughs> like, six for hours. hours. <laughs> <laughs> sending him to boarding school. Fuck. Yeah. Okay. Look, I, I can't comment on his decision. Yeah, yeah, it's probably yeah. not the decision sounds... I would make but maybe it's we an don't. amazing school uh, and we don't know we really don't know good for and you all. there's a place for all, all these kind of things and that's not what i'm trying to comment on is his choice to do that i'm sort of more wanting to comment on his choice to do the film um and then do it the way he did because um unfortunately despite him wanting to make a film about bipolar and about his experiences which is you know great wanting to do that it doesn't seem like anyone with bipolar was actually employed or discussed with, or, you know, had any discussions yeah, any with him during the making of the film, yeah. apart from his son. And the fact that... I'm just going to get on the high horse a little bit. Go. The fact that his son was initially diagnosed with autism, but then it's been changed to bipolar is like, I don't know, obviously, Matthew, I don't know, David, I don't know anything, but that seems odd to me. It just seems a bit... They were looking for another answer when he could still have autism. Yeah. Again, we need to Again, read we don't know. their case notes. But on the note, too, that he read this novel and wanted to make a movie about it because he saw his, himself and his son in it, um, Matthew Quick, who is the writer of the novel, actually wrote it. The original book, which I haven't read, sorry, uh, Pat in the book doesn't actually seem to have bipolar disorder. He doesn't have anything actually mentioned in the book, but what it does look like is that he has some sort of acquired brain injury rather than bipolar. Okay. Um, he's been, Pat's been in the institution for actually quite, quite a number of years in the book and really struggles to piece together his memory. Um, he, you know, he's looking for his wife to start their marriage, not realizing that their marriage has been over for years. So it's really, he's quite an impaired memory, which suggests more of an, a brain injury rather than bipolar. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's more like when you read it up in Wikipedia, it's like, it seems that the character has a brain injury. So it's not just this piece of information that suggests it. So the fact that David O. Russell like picked it up and went, I'm going to turn this into a bipolar movie. <laughs> I don't really get it, but anyway. Well, yeah, especially since uh, I was reading that Matthew Quick um, worked with the, the quote, mental health community. <laughs> Sorry, mm-hmm. I hate when people say the X... YZ community. Because, like, you know, they're, all, like they're, they're, all, like, they're all in one place. <laughs> yeah, it's like they're like a little flock of sheep in a pen <laughs> that you can go in and tend to them. And Anyway. Um, well, they kind of are online. Like, you know, your Facebook group, they're all in a flock. Yeah, Just true. Just like I'm in all my little flocks and my groups. <laughs> true. Anyway. Well, yeah, he, 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 he really has just, like, taken this book and been like, yeah, I'm going to make that. That's my thing. Yeah. That's mine now. 
Just like he's been like, my son's got this diagnosis. It's mine now. It's my story. I'm going to make, I'm going to literally make money off this. It's a little bit dodge. I don't know. Maybe I'm taking it too far. I feel like I might be as well. Um, but he also has, um, David O. Russell's notorious for being a real, um, not a nice person on his movie set. Really? Very um, pushy. There was some allegations on um, the set of I Heart Huckabees and there was like some video footage of him just, just being really abusive. To, oh, his, uh... to Jason. Okay, we need to cancel David O. Russell. Oh, I don't think we've got enough yet. Oh, just just to finish up on Matthew Quick, um, he he did say that he wrote this book when he was in a period of real depression and he was quite broke and he's had um, and writing helped him open up about his own battle with depression, um, especially in a blue collar neighborhood where no one really talked about it. So. Yeah, like it sounds like he's got quite a lot of lived experience, not necessarily with bipolar, but for how mental illness is depicted, which I think is a big part of this film. Like it's, I think David O. Russell particularly made it to be like, mental illness, pay attention. Yeah. Which maybe is what Matthew Quick was trying to say. I um I kind of take exception to somebody with depression which, you know, like 14% of the population has mm, being like, it. yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do the definitive. I don't think he said that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just that's what inspired him to write this novel. And it's, okay. it's not a depression book. Either. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. I'm just really feeling, I'm just, my, feeling passionate about my it. bile is up. Ooh. My vitriol. Your black bile. My black bile. <laughs> Forgot about two things. My black bile. <laughs> uh, should I move on to some of the actors in the film? Yeah, Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper. Fuck, I don't like Bradley Cooper. Oh, look. I like him in his funny roles. What funny roles? Um, the Hangover. No, well, he's in Wet Hot American Summer. Is he? Oh, yeah. He gets married. Yeah, he does. Nah. Um, so Bradley Cooper has spoken about his struggles with alcoholism and depression in 2014 when he was oh. speaking with probably a lot of magazines but this one's from GQ um but this movie came out in 20 2013 2013 so yeah so it sounds like he's probably had some lived experience with alcoholism um mm. and he he's was keen to talk about a story of hope and recovery of this movie um, to serve as a great encouragement to anyone seeking seeking freedom from the pain of addiction. But I think, you know, he's been in other movies like, um, what's that terrible film with Lady Gaga that's a remake? Oh, um, A Star Is Born. A Star Is Born. Like, that's a big plot line in that one. Is it? Yeah. I haven't, se- I haven't seen any of them. Oh, don't. You won't like them. But he, it also sounds like he learnt more about bipolar after doing this movie and got more involved in activism and stuff. That's nice. That's nice. It's not lived experience, though, in my book. What about J-Law? J-Law. I feel like I knew this always about her. She's she's always had a struggle with anxiety, and she spoke about how when she started school, she got really – she turned into a very anxious person. Um, And she went and saw a psychologist, but nothing worked. So maybe she just didn't have a very good psychologist. Maybe she didn't do the homework. Maybe she didn't. Uh, She didn't do the worksheets. But – um. When she started acting, that became sort of her therapy. And when she went on stage, she got that spark, that light back in her. Her shimmer. Her shimmer. (laughs) Um, So, 
Yeah, she's definitely had that anxiety. And it sounds like her character probably also has that anxiety. So there's a bit there. Yeah. I think we can all relate to that. What about Bobby D? Bobby D. Bobby D sounds pretty locked down from the interview. Well, he's he's a boomer. (laughs) Boomers don't like to talk about mental health. Well, in his words... Oh, I was just on the cusp of trying to do an impersonation and I'm not <laughs> going to do it. I don't like to get emotional. Yeah, my voice is, has a De Niro quality uh, to it. A little bit. I don't like to get emotional, but I know exactly what Russell goes through. Ooh. But actually, Russell. That's all he the... said. That's all he said, right? That's all he said. Yeah. And we know that he's got sons, so... We don't know what It happened. sounds like he's alluding to some sort of mental illness among his adult sons. Mm-hmm. But we don't know. We don't know. Oh, I did read, though, mm. um, that he, like, a few years ago, he discovered, like, his father's journals and art, and I think he's published them, um, and that his dad has this big backstory where he came out as gay, um, and I think, you know, was probably really shunned. And so he's got lots of trauma in his past from that. Oh. Um, so I reckon there's a lot underneath the surface, surface, surface with Robert De Niro that we just don't know about. He's got to be a big mafia man. He's got to be good coffee. <laughs> oh, that's what I was going to say before. The wonderful podcast, You Are Good, did an episode on Goodfellas recently. Yeah. And there was some very funny moments and it's just very lovely and I love that it's like the least feminist film in the entire universe, but Sarah Marshall loves it, Alex Steed loves it, and and so does their guest. I can't remember who it is, but it was just fun to be like, "Isn't Goodfellas great?" <laughs> it's a it's an amazing movie. It is, but yeah, that's all we know about Robert. Really, he knows okay. what it's like to be a dad. Well, that's Bing! that. <laughs> all right, let's get to the nitty gritty. Accuracy. Accuracy. I guess there's kind of three main characters with a possible diagnosis. Mm. Yes. So should we they? should we talk about Pat first? Let's talk about Pat first. So he's stated in the movie to have scored a bipolar diagnosis. Yes. Doesn't say bipolar one or two, but I think it's clear that it's supposed to be bipolar one. Any. I was going to say, in according to the DSM, any mania, hypo, or otherwise that requires hospitalisation, automatically qualifies as full-blown mania. Okay. But he was put in his institution by the court, so that probably doesn't yeah. count. I, don't I know. think the court thing confuses it because, like, some readings I've done online, su- people that don't like the movie that much, suggest that it was just, like, a court-ordered diagnosis to just put him into an institution instead of jail. Yeah. Um, which, you know, was probably realistic in some ways um but he definitely seems manic well yeah like let's talk about the things that he does that do meet criteria um when he's first discharged he's not sleeping Mm -hmm. he stays up all night Mm -hmm. he reads his wife's entire english syllabus to kind of prove that he's smart and worthy of her he's also got i don't know if we said that specifically before but one of the criteria for mania is having like like delusions and grandiose self um thoughts and beliefs yeah and he believes like he's gonna get his wife back she loves him he loves her she's got these little problems but 
we're good. We're fine. We're we're, we're a beautiful couple. couple. Yeah. We have. What does he say? Like we, uh, it's like fire and, and sparks when they're together. Electricity. Some shit. Yeah. So yeah. Um, he's also got that pressured speech, like in the middle of the night, he busts into his parents' room to tell them about Hemingway and why he didn't like it. And I think like on paper, it's pressured speech. I don't think having, having seen real life pressured speech, I don't think Bradley nailed it, but you know. Yeah. Like I, that could be just be him. (laughs) It didn't feel like out of control and you could follow what he was saying it had more, it had it had to, it was too logical i think for me i wonder if that was movie magic though so yeah. the audience weren't like what the fuck is he talking yeah, about yeah true like you it's not a movie where you want to see someone like doing literal word salad which is something mm-hmm. you can get with mania yeah he doesn't seem to have a lot of insight into his behavior and i feel like this is a common thing with mania is not having any insight into how you're impacting others and how what he's saying actually doesn't make sense or isn't reality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with any mental illness, you may or may not have insight. Yeah, true, true. Um, but he he sort of gains some insight and some judgment throughout the movie when he starts. Like, he, he doesn't have any... He, he doesn't hesitate to throw the Hemingway book out the window and, like, mm. smash the window um but then they have a fight he has a fight with his parents he pushes his mum for some reason and then his dad yeah sort of jumps on him and he's just very sorry like he he starts to learn yeah what he's done yeah yeah and there's sort of a suggestion of some psychotic features which would again score him the the bipolar one diagnosis Mm -hmm. he says that he can hear the Stevie Wonder song. Is that even how it goes? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know the song. I'm glad I don't hear it. Makes some people go crazy. Oh. Um, yeah, he says he can hear it in his head when it's not playing. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's more of a trauma response than an actual hallucination. Well, especially if he's remembering what happened and that's mm. a big traumatic experience for him. Yeah, which yeah. It, yeah. it's like more of an earworm than a. Mm. Mm. Yeah, like I get booples and banunus stuck in my head all the fucking time. <laughs> uh, I do the propeller, do <laughs> the propeller. So I guess what I'm angling towards is that he does meet all the criteria for bipolar, but... But. Well, he does meet all the criteria for mania. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Sorry, minus. Yeah. Um, but just throughout the whole movie, I... I was never really convinced that that's what it was because it seems like it's been a really long pattern for him that he's always been like this. Like he's always been disinhibited and asks weird questions and and, uh, like alienates people. Yeah. And he often says like, I don't have a filter. Yeah. I'm just honest all the time. So it's like his resting state. And when he sees people too, they're not like, oh, you're not well. Like when he sees his, um, to me, he's like manic through that, the whole movie pretty much. Maybe hypomanic because at some times he's functional and others he's not. Yeah. Um, but his friend isn't like, oh, okay, I think you need to chill. He's like, yeah, yeah. this is you. Actually, yeah, that's um, that's one of the main things for mania as well is that it's noticeable yeah. to other people. And, and nobody, no one's ever like... Gee, you're acting. Gee, your speech is pressured, isn't it, Bradley? Mm. Like, 
they're just like this is him. So and when you see the other movie where do it's it's completely different. Yeah. Uh, portrayal from what we see. Yeah. Doesn't mean it's not likely that he has bipolar, but it's not it's not textbook. Yeah. Well, I, I just I just thought it does actually seem more like an acquired brain injury. Mm. Um, but there's no there's no history of trauma in the film or the book, so that's just like. But you know, I guess maybe something happened when he was younger and yeah, really the swing set hit his head. And I also wondered, you, you're the um, ASD expert. I wondered if maybe he was on the spectrum. Yeah, I, d- I did wonder that too. Like the way his mind works is very black and white. You have to get to, you really have to convince him of logical reasons why he, he needs to do something. Like if this happens, this will happen. Okay, I'll do the thing. He, he gets fixated on he gets fixated the on, yeah, on the syllabus and the goal the that dance. he's going to do and just, you know, filters everything else out and doesn't necessarily know, pick up on other things that, mm. that other people are doing or seeing. Um, and if we were to go through the criteria for ASD, which I won't do right now, uh, he probably would meet it because some of his social cues are a bit um, not what you would consider part of the normal population as well. Yeah. Like his eye contact is sometimes a bit too much. Yeah. 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 What I'm trying to say is that maybe the accuracy of the bipolar diagnosis is a little bit wishy-washy. If we saw uh, an episode of depression, then I think it would feel a bit more uh, accurate. Yeah, like maybe if there was some cycling to make it a little bit more of a um, prototypical kind of bipolar. And can I just say um, there are quite a few doctors who have been brought on. Oh, so many psychiatrists that have been interviewed to say, what do you think about this movie? Don't they love it? Don't the psychiatrists love a brush with Tinseltown? Let me tell you about what I think about this movie, guys. (laughs) You're going to charge me for it? (laughs) And we're out of time. (laughs) Um, But quite a few like it. Mm. Um, but quite a few also, even when they do like it, will say, mm, you know, it's probably not quite right. For example, like Dr. Schlossman, uh, I can't remember what the article is, but I will link it to you, says, yeah, it's not actually the most common case that only has lots of manic episodes, but no depression. Mm. Even though we picture bipolar as this kind of sine wave thing where you go up, down, up, down, most people have mixed states where they're de decompensating so they'll be highly irritable going a million miles a minute but not euphoric pat isn't sleeping he's grandiose he has pressured speech he actually meets the criteria for mania and you don't ever really see a purely depressive state you see those times where he feels sort of defeated like when he throws the book out the window so yeah he's kind of agreeing that yeah you know he probably doesn't look like he's experiencing the bipolar that we know yeah and, and, but it makes know... for a better storyline <laughs> That and also maybe it's a good idea not to th- just make it a big, big fat stereotype. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's a point in its favour because, yeah, you know, agitation and irritability are a big part of hypomania and mania. So maybe they're just, yeah, just trying to present a more um, nuanced bipolar. Alternatively, um, which kind of in agreement with what we had just said earlier, Michael Blumenfield, president of the American Academy of Psychoanalysis and Dynamic Psychiatry, um, isn't really convinced that Pat has bipolar. 
Um, it shows in flashbacks in the movie that Pat snapped and severely beat a man after catching him in the shower with Pat's wife. And he suggests that maybe Cooper's character is actually suffering from trauma. So, yeah, I think there's a bit more to it than just like one experience making such a huge change. I don't think he'd hit <laughs> criteria for PTSD based on seeing his wife with somebody but else. There might have been other stuff leading up to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which we don't know about. Another thing that I thought about with him was that, like, I've seen a lot of people through, like, I used to work for a medico-legal doctor um, and just in the hospitals as well. You see a lot of people who have difficult behaviour, maybe they've got a forensic history, they've got maybe an underlying personality issue and maybe when they're at school they act up and they score their antisocial personality disorder diagnosis and then maybe they have a drug-induced psychosis and maybe their psychosis is like is this mania is this schizophrenia and they just like snowball all these diagnoses Mm. and to me pat kind of meets that kind of fits that kind of vibe where like yeah, maybe one day he came in contact with a psychiatrist and he was hitting criteria for mania. Yeah. So he a... got that diagnosis, but maybe that's not necessarily the right one, but it, yeah. it was at the time. Like it, it just goes to tell you, you you need longitudinal assessment of psych patients to make a proper diagnosis. Yeah. You can't just... And not just in the one uh, environment either. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely a, not. It was in a clinic for eight months. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and that's a really good point because I think that's the experience with so many people who go, go, who go on to have diagnoses of severe mental illness is is that you you can only use the DSM for the the symptoms that you're experiencing at that time, and you know in that point in time or that period of time, so it is really fallible as mm. well. Yeah, especially just... when you're seeing multiple providers, like you say, in different. Um, environments like you know the you don't have that longitudinal um, information yeah to it but I guess we're digressing a little bit because a little bit but this it, it's is supposedly the bipolar movie <laughs> yeah yeah I think if we take a step away from that then then maybe it is quite an accurate depiction of somebody who just just got an undifferentiated mental severe mental illness mm. yeah yeah um all of a sudden I love this movie <laughs> In psychology today, they were sort of criticising it for being the fact that the bipolar appears to manifest itself primarily in aggressive and violent outbursts, which I would agree, like, we think he's he's manic throughout pretty much the whole movie, and it's when he's aggressive and violent, that's when he's, like, peaked. But that's not really, to me, a a very good way to show that bipolar. Yeah. as 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 it usually presents itself. I mean, if I've said it once, well, we'll I've get said to it that a thousand times that people with mental illness are more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators. We will get to that. <laughs> um, before we finish with Pat, um, I just want to say I do kind of like the depiction of a panic attack when he hears the song um, outside the movie theater, and he's like losing grip on what's going on, um, and then the breathing kind of calming him down and focusing him. Like, that was, was alright. I didn't like that. <laughs> um, I, I just think it made it look like breathing is the cure for a manic episode. And, well, yeah, well, it has it its place. Ha- I don't think he was having a manic episode, though. I thought he was having a panic attack. Yeah. 
I don't know, it just seemed too easy. It was too simple. He had a beautiful lady taking him through the ring, so it's fine. True. Should we talk about Tiffany? Tiffany. Tiffany. Let's talk about her character, I guess, and what, what what we know about her. She's clearly grieving. Her husband died. Yeah, her husband died in a car accident, right? Yeah, and she I think she's got some caught up um, guilty feelings because he was had bought her some sexy laundry so that they could restart their sex life a bit because she mm. wasn't feeling it. And she he crashes on and the way home or something. Yeah. Yeah. So totally reasonable to be traumatized. Oh, hundred percent. Um but she does have this sort of backstory of her being I don't even know where it comes from, but like sexually promiscuous. But then after that, um, you know, after her grief, while she's grieving, she she admits to Pat that she's had sex with everyone in her office, which was 11 people. Um, so I guess if you're a psychiatrist, you would write down in your little book, sexually promiscuous. But I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. maybe <laughs> I don't know maybe. if I would. It's, um, uh, y- you know, you can have sex with as many people you, as you like, but I think the fact that she lost her job as a result... Yeah, suggests there was... Maybe it was a bit dysfunctional. Yeah, and obviously she... It sounds like they... What she says is they sent it to um, also a mental institution and um, put her on some medication. Yeah. Um, can I just say that this movie really slut shames her so, oh, so, so aggressively, aggressively. throughout. Aggressively. <laughs> Even the way they dress her. Yeah. It's like... She she just she just wants to fuck everybody. Yeah. Um, I really don't like how they treat her in this film, which is another reason why I don't think I like David O. Russell that much. Yeah, but yeah, no, you can you, you know have you just have sex, just enjoy yourself. But it sounds... um, it doesn't mean you've got any diagnosis. No, like I have guess sex you with could... everyone in the in your office if they want to have sex with you, and that's totally. Um, doesn't impact your life or their lives. Yeah, and they make a whole thing about how one of the people in the office is female, and it's like, again, oh, that's fine. I hated that. Just so let's just much. grow up, everyone. Why is that even? Obviously, Pat's from a pretty average conservative family background, so he probably would have asked that question. But anyway. Anyway, um, I, I, I guess like potentially you could go down a path of. Is she sex and or love addicted? But she was in a, but, a marriage for quite some years. Yeah. So to me, it's more of a trauma grief response. Yeah. However, she does say in the movie quite a lot. Uh, well, there, there seems to be a narrative that she feels quite empty. Yeah. Um, and she says something to Pat, like, I do all this shit for other people and then I feel nothing. I don't get what I want. I'm not my sister. I keep, you know. Um, and she keeps doing this over and over again. So it sounds like it's a pattern for her. Um, she tries to get things to feel. Um, she feels, but she feels empty. Um, so that's a common theme in people with a personality disorder, such as borderline personality disorder. She hits a lot of borderline criteria. She has brief, intense relationships. Although she was married for some time. Yeah, yeah, that's oh, true. Don't tell you that. The emptiness, as you say. Risky behaviour. She, like, trashes that diner and yells. Oh, and... I hate that scene, yeah. Yeah. Um, she's emotionally labile. Yes. And, and 
she's, I think, pretty keen to avoid abandonment. So she, I, I think that the whole arc of her writing fake letters from Pat's ex-wife is just a, a, you know, a ploy to avoid him abandoning her. And also she, obviously you find out that she's kind of been quite close with Pat's family this whole time because they've been sort of scheming together to get him to do this dance and, um, you know, focus away from Nikki as well. Um, so she's very like caught up in relationships and maybe doesn't have a good sense of boundaries. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. You know, she gives, like she says, she gives a lot to other people um, in a... In maybe not the most healthy way. Yeah. Um, so I think if she's if she's got anything, like obviously there's presumably your garden variety, grief, depression, anxiety mm. in the mix. Who doesn't have those things? Um, but yeah, I, I I would say yeah, like she's yeah coded. Coded. Borderline. Yeah. Also, there's that impulsivity which could be. Uh, many things um mm. but common with borderline is when she's like okay oh, hey, i gotta leave you're gonna walk me home come on let's do let's go like she's she's not um she's hard to sort of stay with you sort of thing yeah um but yeah most articles and psychiatrists believe she is coded borderline personality disorder mm. uh that same uh psychiatrist that we talked about before schlossman I like. I just really like saying his name, Schlossman. Um, <laughs> he had he had a really good point. He said it's hard to not see that character and wonder a little bit about borderline personality disorder for her. I think we're probably supposed to think that, and then we're supposed to feel bad about thinking that after we hear her history, which is silly because people are allowed to have horrible histories and people are allowed to have borderline personality disorder, and there's nothing wrong with either of those things. And I agree. Mm. Um, but we can make an assumption that there's depression because she's on Effexor, which is an antidepressant, but you can have both depression and borderline personality disorder. Um, yeah, and it's also she's also said things like, look, I can barely take care of myself. So we know that she was doing badly even before the death of her husband. Yeah. But also, I love this, I kind of like this psychiatrist a lot, even though I don't think um, this movie is as good as he thinks. Um, because he's like, it's frustrating because she's obviously a foil for Pat's character development. We don't see her develop a whole lot. And he thinks her life's more complicated than she's leading on and he'd be quite worried about her long term. Which I agree, because she's basically just put everything on the line for Pat. Yeah. Um, she's obviously got her dance competition, but she doesn't... It's not. It's unclear why she wants to do it, because she clearly doesn't think they're as good as everybody else. It thinks just, just a something to work towards, which is fantastic. Apparently in the book, the, the dance competition is called Dance Away Depression. Ah, so it's more of a, like, a therapeutic thing. Yeah, mm. so I think that um, David O. Russell, is that his name? Yes. Russell O. David has o. Um, just Hollywooded it up a bit. Yeah, so that he could get some cute, cool costumes in there. Yeah. It is still, like, the same venue, though, in the book, which seems like a really cool venue. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Fascinating. Yeah, so, you know, she might not be in the healthiest places. It seems like she's put her eggs all in one basket to have a relationship with Pat and we'll get to the message that that portrays, but, you know, she's still got, it sounds like she's still got a lot to work on. However, at the same time, she says lots of empowering things, like, I like that part of myself. I'm messy and I'm a bit, um, 
what did she, did she say slutty? I don't know. But I think there is a scene where she's like, yes, I'm a slut. I like to have sex. If you can't have it. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like she isn't shaming herself at least. Yeah. But I <laughs> Someone think has it, to not slut shame her. I think that that's presented in the movie as something to be ashamed of. Yeah. Like, like it's presented in the movie as a symptom yeah, she should be ashamed of her sex. Oh, yeah, and sex and her bo- borderline. Mm. Oh, it's a compl- it's complicated. Mm. I just don't think it's done very well. If that is what she has, and if if she does, why don't they just say it like they do with Pat? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like um, David O. Russell went out on a limb, changing the book from an unspecified mental illness to calling it bipolar. Why not just call her borderline? I yeah. don't know. I don't know. Maybe. He thinks audiences aren't going to relate to someone with borderline. They've got a bad rep. And if that's the case, then it just makes me feel sus on David O. Russell even more. Yeah, 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 me too. He wants to smash one stigma but not the other. Yeah, enhance one stigma. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, (laughs) what about the dad? Like, he's pretty cooked too. (laughs) Yes. He's super cooked. He's got a gambling addiction with obsessive compulsive features. Yes. Um, how do you define both of those from what we see? Um, well, I mean, I get just saying that out loud, I'm like, I wonder which one came first. But, like, in terms of, well, say, okay, the gambling addiction is pretty clear. We see him do a lot of gambling. It Like, he takes... He spends a lot of time on gambling, which is one of the criteria for an addiction. He, um, he, he, he... It seems to possess him 24 hours a day. Yeah, yeah. And he, you know, the he, he loses a massive bet, right? And he pretty much fucks them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, his gambling is risky. Um, and it's escalated to a point where it could leave him and his family destitute. Yeah. <laughs> um, and even when he has lost everything, he goes double or nothing. Yeah. The parlay thing. Um, he ups the stakes even more and more and more. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, there's the backstory of him being banned from the games because he got um, aggressive. So, yeah, it clearly impacts his functioning. Yeah, that, and, and I also think that that just speaks to just a general um, shitty environment for... Pat growing up like yeah. it, you the know if, you, if you're if you're violent with strangers at a football match like what do you like at home yes um and in terms of the obsessive compulsive type traits like he's got this hanky that's his lucky charm and he I, I really like I really like that scene where he's just like they're like and Pat's like what's that and he's just like he's just playing with it and not saying anything like he's just kind of fixated on it even and, and can't explain it and doesn't want to make it a thing, but he's can't even pull himself away from it. It yeah. just reminds me of how my my dad reminds <laughs> me a little bit of Robert De Niro. They yeah. kind of look the same, especially in their respective ages. And dad can sort of just fiddle with things like that sometimes. It's really cute. Anyway. Yeah, I see it. Yeah, and he, he gets into his head that Pat is a lucky charm and he really goes to extreme lengths to keep him around because he thinks that it's going to, you know, sway the, the game in his favour. 
Um, and it's only when Tiffany's like, no, when he's with me, he's a good luck charm, is when he allows Pat to go off and do his own thing. Yeah, mm. yeah. And can I just can I just say, can I just say... No. At some point, could we not have had somebody say, like, Pat's not a lucky charm. It, he's your The outcome of games depends on, like the quality of the players and the training they've done and the fucking weather condition. <laughs> like, we, we really get sucked into this whole thing about the gambling and the lucky charms, and I never bought it. I couldn't suspend my disbelief around that. It just made no fucking sense. I have two things to say about that. Number one is it sounds like in wherever they are, in Philadelphia, that is the culture of games, of NF- NFL. I think so. Yeah, that is the culture there. Right. You know, they're obviously obsessed, and it sounds like it's not that unusual for people to be so fixated on luck and and have those kind of rituals. Right. Um, I think a lot of the marketing... So it's cultural. It's not a diagnosis. It's cultural. (laughs) I don't know about that. Um, I think for the promo of this, they were asking people what their little, you know, rituals that they do to, to bring them luck for a game. Right which is kind of normalising pathological behaviour. But anyway. No, um, it's cultural. <laughs> yeah, well, it I'm is. not joking. No, no, you're right. Um, I still think Robert De Niro's character has a mental illness. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that I think goes on with this is the family dynamics as well. I believe I, I see narcissism in this character, or at least narcissistic parenting, because everything that happens is about him and his games. Mm. Um the wife, Jackie Weaver, has literally no control over what happens. She's just mm. there. And even when she's, like, yelling at him, this is toxic, stop it, he just bloody ignores her, even though it's her house, too, that he's gambling with. Yeah. Um, and it sounds, it seems like this is what he's been like. His entire, like, their entire family life with him. Yeah. So trying to explain to him, no, this is, luck doesn't have anything to do with it. Like, he would just fall on deaf, deaf ears because that's what, He's, you know, it's like trying to um, convince someone who's drunk the Kool-Aid. Like yeah. He's there. He's, he's, in, he's too deep in it. Um, and as, you know, my grandfather was a huge gambler and it was part of their entire life until he's now in a nursing home. But until that point, he gambled everything he had. And it's just so toxic, the gambling disease of gambling (laughs) it's it's really much and and you'll never stop it because governments make money off it it's sick as as happens in this fucking in brisbane this fucking 10 million story casino it's just disgusting we don't need any more casinos guys yeah um anyway but, but on top of like obviously the gambling is the addiction but he i just found that scene where he's like Pat's obviously doing really well. He's going off and doing his dancing and he's coming home and he's sleeping. Um, he's got something productive to do. And his dad's just like, we've got a real situation here. And then starts crying and saying, we need to spend time together. Like to me, that whole scene is so manipulative. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's pure narcissism. He doesn't care about Pat. He doesn't want to bond with Pat. He just wants to win the games. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it feels like that's probably also the fact that his brother t- shows up and he's like kind of a golden child. Yeah. Which is often in a narcissistic family. Oh, I've got to do some more episodes on this because I really, it's fascinating <laughs> to me. The, 
there's often the black sheep and the golden child in that narcissistic parenting um, arrangement. And Pat's clearly the black sheep. <laughs> and this other brother who we only meet once, but he's not doing really well for himself, is like the golden child that yeah. they don't have any problems with. And that often comes with a narcissistic family because it's not about the child themselves and their uniqueness and what they can do, but it's how um, what they can do for you as a parent. And I just feel like everyone in Robert De Niro's life is there for his needs. Yeah. From the very beginning of the movie. Because he tries to get Pat to watch that movie, that game. And as soon as he thinks something's going well, he's like, okay, no, I, this is what's going to happen now. Yeah, yeah. So, and that probably filters a lot into Pat's diagnosis and his oh, behaviour. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. <laughs> What do you think about the therapy in the film, Miss Charlotte? Um, well, I guess we see a few things. We see group therapy and we see like one-on-one counselling um, and we talk like more about medications mm-hmm. than probably in, in most m- movies. And I think that scene where they're talking about all the medications they're on is probably pretty like, I don't know if I've seen a film like that. Where they've had a scene like that, where like they list off all these medications. Yeah, so Pat and Tiffany have. This is probably the first moment that they really bond is when they talk about what psych meds they've been on, and the list of of, of drugs that they mention is, is um, lithium, Seroquel, Abilify, Xanax, Effexor, Clonopin, and Trazodone. Um, so they're all sort of mood stabilizers and anti anxiety anxiolytics and um, antidepressants yeah and they talk about all the side effects Mm. um, about how they felt really like muted or bloated and um yeah yeah. it was interesting yeah it was it was quite a natural nice way to normalize what it's yeah like to be on lots of different medications or being on trials for lots of different medications so you get the right one and it's be good for people to be able to talk more about that yeah definitely it's very taboo being being on head meds let's let's have one let's have a chat about it right now what are you on michael i'm on half of what you're on oh like super twins (laughs) in terms of his one-on-one psych i don't know if he was any good like i don't like it you don't like it all right tell (laughs) us i think i you know as a character the psychiatrist seemed like a nice guy i'll, I'll say that <laughs> that's all I, that's all the positive things i can say okay. compliments a compliment open grill um in psychology today they think dr patel is problematic because he intentionally provokes pat by playing the song that reminds him of a traumatic event and then later completely abandons his professional role in favor of joining with pat as a maniacal eagles fan which, you know, not only is that not accurate, but you just be like, today we are fans, guy. Mm, like mm. if I saw a, a client at you know, a, a concert or whatever, which is probably the closest I would get to that sort of situation, <laughs> I would not be like, yeah, let's, let's sit out in front and, and sing along and dance together. I'd be mm. like, good to see you, and then move on. And that's, that's, that's what your advice to do. Yeah, for sure. In your ethical, you know, code of ethics. Uh, but this is America. Um, but I also find that the psychiatrist is a little bit like, I just find him a bit lazy. He doesn't really push him to take his medication. He just says, you've got to. And then he's fixated on him having a strategy to deal with the song. That's like his only sort of 
focuses his, having a strategy. He's like, you need to have a strategy. It doesn't help him to figure out what that strategy is. Yeah, he never actually names job. anything. Yeah. Or, you know, say, what do you think is a good strategy, Pat? Yeah. And, and I thought maybe, like, particularly that, maybe the medication conversation and just the character of Dr. Patel in general was maybe a bit anti-psychiatry. Yeah. Where it's like He's not really doing these quacks. They don't like, do anything. Yeah. yeah. And 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 the whole thing where you deliberately play a trigger, like deliberately expose your patient to a trigger that you know would be putting people in your waiting room at risk of violence for, and, for starters. And that's exactly what happens. And also just putting your patient at risk of deteriorating acutely. That's a fucking terror. Nobody would ever do that. A, unethical, and if you, I would report that to the board as, you know, unethical Yeah, behavior. it's cruel. And B, that's bad therapy. <laughs> what are you trying to achieve? Like, the, in the psychiatry, later, you just ask. He says later, just wanted to see if it was still a trigger. Just ask him, yeah. Yeah, just ask. Just play it in his office. And it's funny because when I first watched, watched that happening, I was like, oh, he's having a delusion. And he's like making up. Like, he thinks it's a conspiracy. Oh, yeah, yeah, me him. too, me too. Like, did Dr. Patel put you up to this? And he did. Like, if you're, if you're working with someone who's already prone to delusions, why would you create yeah. a, something that's going to make them feel like it's a, everything's against him? Like yeah. It's being put up to something. Like, that's just uh, such bad therapy. Just, yeah, no, that's fucked. Um, but also just what he encouraged, like, he encourages him to be friends with Tiffany, so... Maybe that will show Nikki that he's good at making friends. And on the surface, like, maybe that's a good way because it's giving him buy-in um, with some currency that he will use. But also he's encouraging him still to um, continue to believe this delusion that his wife wants to get back with him. Yeah. Like, he's not... I just don't think anything he does is at all therapeutically helpful. It's it uh, To me, it's weird for a therapist to just outright tell someone what to do like i've always thought that the the art of talk based therapy mm. is like tricking people into making the right decisions <laughs> and thinking that they is. made them up <laughs> made, yeah and when you um, get it you're like yes <laughs> yeah but like just telling him to to go down this rabbit hole with tiffany yeah it seems a bit weird yeah mm. he does that a lot yeah having said that though because i haven't worked with many um, clients with bipolar, I have worked with some, and it was a, you know a while ago now. Um, it looks like it's difficult to pin him down and keep him there. True. So, and as we said, he seems quite manic throughout the movie, or at least hypomanic. So he might not just have be able to do much more than that as a psychiatrist. That's true. I, I pay that. But I do think that Dr. Patel is really just there to sort of humanize psychiatrists, but not make them look like they're any good at it. Because, you know, he gets arrested with everybody else and he's, you know, he's just, he ends up being more of a friend than a psychiatrist by the end of the movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which was good in a movie way. Like, I like, I enjoy that arc. Like, if you're talking just about storytelling, he goes from, he has a pretty major transformation and that's satisfying to watch. Yeah, for storytelling purposes. But yeah, if it's but not for... Reducing stigma and having the conversation purposes, I don't find it yeah. at all effective. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to say on the having a strategy thing, um, the, the, the next time that he hears the song outside the, um, cinema, um, and J-Law just talks him down by telling him to breathe, it, that's the strategy. <laughs> um, and like, A, I don't think it's sufficient, 
not to poo-poo breathing, but I, fuck you. I don't. Lots of people poo-poo no, no. breathing. Yeah, I know. It's, also, it's good. It's good. I do it. There's good science behind it. I know, I know, words, I know, I know. And I do it too. That, that's, I just, I think it's kind of trying to say like, well, the, the psychiatrist is going to tell you to find a strategy, but they're not going to tell you anything. The, you know, the real help you get is from, you know, random people you make friends with at a dinner party. Like, yeah. She, she's but, not a psych professional or anything. <laughs> she, <laughs> but she's using basic 101 anxiety management strategy. Breathing, like, you know, like the first session, I think I've told everyone in the first session some breathing exercises. Yeah, because it's like you've got two <laughs> minutes after you've yeah. heard their life story to be like, okay, do this. Yeah. Do some breathing. That's all you can do. <laughs> yeah, goodbye. <laughs> Take a deep breath and I'll leave. Lovely turn on fifty dollars. I wish. Um, but yeah, I yeah, I felt it was dumb. Yeah, the therapy's a bit dicey, which leads us into stereotypes. Yeah. Uh, well, why don't we just lead with the stereotype that psychiatrists are hacks, lazy, don't understand boundaries, like. Mm. You know, they're not just your psychiatrist, they can do other things too. Um, and also, psychiatrists are themselves crazy because, like, he turns, you know, he seems to end up, you know, in the same situation as everybody else who attends that game. So it, it makes it seem like he's just as, you know, crazy as everybody else. He was Which beaten the... up for being Indian. Though. Yeah. The, I mean, the underlying message of the film is that we're all crazy. So. Exactly. And look. Often psychiatrists have a touch of mental illness themselves and psychologists. But he's entitled to go and From enjoy himself. At a, at a, yeah, sorry. Yeah. So he, he's entitled to blow off some... To, to, to go and enjoy his hobbies. And if somebody, you know, makes a racial slur at him and threatens him, frankly, I think the fight was reasonable, at least in, like, movie world. Um, and, you know, frankly, probably in real life. Oh, yeah. Oh, in Australia, we've been like, <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. but I think we've we've focused enough on the psychiatrist uh, issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, I guess you know the movie is called The Silver Linings Playbook. So, like, there's a big, and he says it throughout the whole film. So you've got to be positive, and that is kind of I think a message of the film too is that you just gotta see the good, see the silver lining, and then you will have the silver lining sort of it's it's a state of mind like getting through your mental illness is a state of mind and an article in webmd found that a real issue um saying the movie will be hit with those who think that hyperactivity is just a failure of discipline and depression merely a bad attitude yeah which is a very common stereotype especially pull yourself up by the bootstraps yeah and the wellness industry like just just you know feel the vibe and you'll you'll feel better in your mental health yeah which is fine for you know the worried well i guess it, it has its place for people who aren't super unwell in looking in, in at some the positive ways. is a strategy it's yeah a strategy but not people who have been diagnosed with bipolar have been institutionalized who've been put on serious psych meds doesn't it's not it's not the yeah yeah it's not going to be the panacea no. Mm. It might do that last, like, 95% of yeah. help. I and mean, sorry, the, the last 5% on... And it's a inspiration point way of looking yeah. at it. Like, look yeah. at this person with bipolar and they just see the good in them. Yeah. 
and and I think that plays into sort of a broader stereotype of the of the film, which you know, if you have a mental illness, you just have to work. You mm. just have to take your meds. You just need to find the right girl, and everything will be fine. Yeah, there's not actual like work involved in it. You just you know, life will just happen, and you'll find the thing. Um, when actually, there's a lot of fucking work that goes into managing and um, living with. A mental illness such as bipolar mm. and 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 you know i think it's kind of implied at the end of the movie that he has started taking his medication and and that's kind of it is the but reason. it's not obvious it's not explicit. super explicitly yeah. stated so but I th- for all we know he's not i think that is a stereotype and you kind of see it in the other movie too that that you'll be doing um mm. touched with fire um it kind of glosses over how shit the medications can be. Yeah, it's like, just take your medication and you'll be okay. Um, but there can still be quite severe side effects from that medication. And yeah. And it's not as easy as doing that. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And, and you know, points for this film for the medication conversation where they talk about the the how they feel yucky on them. But, you know what, maybe talk about lithium toxicity. Yeah. You know? Tell me more Talk about, about oh no. <laughs> no. Uh, it's boring. It's got to do with kidneys. Um, and they're about to start a relationship. Let's talk about how it really fucks with your libido. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. And I guess on that note too, it's also you don't really see Pat do or Tiffany do any actual therapeutic work in the film. Um, they don't really sort out any other aspect of their life. They just end up in a relationship. Mm. essentially Mm. um tiffany just tries to fix him which isn't going to work long term in managing her own stuff um they just kind of invest themselves in each other and look dancing is a really good strategy for managing mental illness and having a project and something to work towards great strategy that's you know that is good stuff but um you know it's almost like pat just decides okay i'm done with like chasing after my wife now now it's now i'm just going to focus on tiffany yeah. Which leads to the biggest stereotype of the film. Don't know if you've heard of it. Love fixes mental illness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I did find it interesting. One of the psychiatrists who um, chimes in on this, I think it's Dr. Schnoz... Schnoz... Schnozberg. Schnozberg. Does say that there are studies out there that say that people do... People with mental illness do better when they're in love. Um, but what is the longitudinal data on that one? I mean, exactly, <laughs> totally, totally. I'm totally love with you. Is you know the infatuation like, is different. Everybody does better when they're in love. Yeah, like everything just seems better. Um, so anyway, like I guess. But he that then goes on to say, what's unheard of is that you suddenly don't need your medicines and life goes on fine forever, and yeah, you, know, you don't have need for therapy or whatever. Yeah, but that's literally what happens in the movie. Um, they both fall in love and they're functional. Yeah, they, they kiss at the end and it's like everything's going to be fine. Yeah. And he basically just moved his fixation from one thing to another. Yeah. But maybe it's a little bit healthier, but it's not, that's not going to address all the, yeah. It's not a treatment for bipolar. <laughs> yeah. 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 Preach. Preach. Bipolar. Uh, kick the ball over to you. <laughs> Mental illness as seeing something that normal people don't see discuss 
What do you mean? Like, they... Pat talks about, like, kind of um, his experience when he's not on medication. Pat kind of talks about when he goes on the medication, he he doesn't... He's not as clear, like, Mm. he, he doesn't have access to what he kind of implies is like a higher plane mm. that normal people don't have access to. Mm. Like what do you think of that that stereotype that if you're if you have some sort of psych disorder, um, it's not an illness. It's just that you perceive the world differently from the normies. Yeah. I guess it's kind of that mental illness is gifted stereotype. Yeah. Yeah. It's all special or, you know, have these special powers. Yeah. Um, which like I, it's, it's a trope and it's a, it's can it can be quite a harmful trope for those people that don't have those special powers it mm. can be like well why can't i go onto a higher plane i have this mental illness i you know I, I don't have that special talent that this other person does am i not as valuable or have i got have i just um you know lucked out mm. you know yeah and you know as you'll find out in touch with fire there's lots of artists who, very famous artists who happen to all, you know, have some level of mental illness, often bipolar, um, and create amazing art in that manic state. And I think the danger with seeing it only that way, it's good to see positives and, and functionality within, you know, really good functions within mental illness, but it sort of negates all the, all the really shit parts of it as well and... and uh, I guess it own danger of painting people with mental illness with that brush of, oh, wow, you're special, but not giving them the support when they're just, you know, in a depressive state. And Yeah, like, if you're struggling, being like, yeah, well, you're you're special. Like, yeah. this is good. Like, you know, it's it's not as... needs to be more nuanced than that. Yeah, yeah. But, like, I, I mean, I think there's also some validity, some. There's some, some value in... Um, that sort of discourse that's like um, society just invents mental illness. Mm. Oh, yeah. And it's 100%. just a way of, of othering people who don't fit in a certain box. Yeah. And we'll talk about this in the next episode too. It's very contextual. Mm. Like in a world where mania is, you know, or where aggression isn't that big a deal and mania is fine, then you probably wouldn't have mental illness. But then you'd still have the depression part. Yeah. So yeah. that's not good for anyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it's not as simple as that, but I agree. There's definitely some validity in the view that what's, what's, and you know, it's a social model. What's dysfunctional is the society, not the mental illness. Yeah. But it also sounds like it's a really shitty time for people when they go through these swings. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. I guess one thing I kind of have a problem with too, which was repeated to me in an NME article is that it's very much like a triumph over adversity movie. Even though, obviously, they don't do that great in the dance. They, you know, it's like championing the underdog. Um, they all, you know, they get where they need to go. They've battled through all their demons and they they you know, got the five average and they, the parlay worked or whatever. It's like, um, it's so, like, typical Hollywood shit. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, this <laughs> enemy... Article was like such other crowd pleasing qualities of Silver Linings Playbook. It's a struggle not to think the entire project has been photoscripted into existence, <laughs> which I thought was funny. Yeah, 
Yeah, and also all the sports references. It's like, but you know, we're not sports people. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, the the other thing that um, I guess because it sort of starts out from a forensic psych kind of perspective, um, Pat has a friend, um, Danny at at the institution who, in the first scene sort of finagles his way into the car with Mm. Pat's mum and it's effectively an escape from the institution. Um, And then he comes back into the movie towards the end for reasons that I don't quite understand, but it kind of sounds like he's found a legal loophole to get out and it's Mm. very much a technicality, like they didn't submit a form within 24 hours of something. And it kind of smacks of, like, it kind of seemed like it was trying to say, oh, well, some people just say they've got mental illness to get out of jail. Um, yeah. Which, you know, I'm sure there's a small proportion of people who do do that. Um, but it just seemed like a weird thing to be saying, yes, I get the point of the movie is that we're all a little bit crazy, um, but, you know, there's really only, like, four characters in this movie. Yeah. Who who matter? Um, so like, why is why is this guy like twenty five percent of your movie? Like, I, he added absolutely nothing to the movie. Yeah, I think it was meant to be comic there. relief because it's Chris or Tucker. It was um, a racial quota. <laughs> Potentially, yeah. I was like, ah, oh, it's a very white film. I'll chuck Chris Tucker in. <laughs> yeah, he'll be happy Ch- to have Ch- something to do. Call Chris. Is Chris free? Yeah, let's get Chris. Come on, Chris. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I just I just thought it was a bit... I don't yeah. know, man. I think it was just meant to be like, look at these oddballs. Yeah. Which, which kind of detracts from and what... Look at this. I think it's also a comment maybe on the institution that it's like, oh, they can't even keep their patients in there. It's a bit of a shit, you know, it's a bit of a shit show. It's, you know, yeah, the I system mean, maybe, isn't great. But... Maybe that's good. I don't know. Maybe it's good to, to highlight those flaws. Ah, <sighs> I don't know, it's just all a bit, it's all just a bit rank. You really loved this movie, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) No, I I like it better having done the reading and having spoken about it a bit, but... Well, on that note, should I talk about the people and the reasons why it was considered a helpful movie? Yeah. So, lots of psychiatrists liked it, like I said, Mm. Stephen Schlossman, who's a Harvard Medical School psychiatrist, I don't know if I told you that, Harold Koplewisch. Koplovich. Harold Koplovich uh, from the Childline Institute, which is a pretty massive institute, also really liked it. But he um, said that the movie is all about openness and focusing on whatever works. Um, and he like referenced Robert De Niro's thing with the hanky and the remotes and stuff, um, which I would say is not a good example of that because he almost lost their entire livelihood. Yeah. But anyway... Um, he also says, you know, the message of the movie is it takes a lot of mutual support for people to be their best selves, whether or not it's, you know, related to mental illness. And he, But he says, like, it's when Pat realises who his real love interest is that he's motivated to take his medication and give up his delusions. And, like, that's not how it happens in the mm, movie. No. <laughs> that's not what happens. But he's just saying, you know, being surrounded by family and being open with your family and friends is what helps you, which is true. Um, but they kind of manipulate him. They don't really support him. His dad's a huge manipulator and, you know, Tiffany lies to him. So it's not really a good example of support either. Yeah. 
but I guess the big message in the film that a lot of people say, including this, like one of uh, a writer with bipolar, is like, you know, everyone's a little bit crazy. Uh, let's just embrace our crazy. And it's maybe some of the good parts about these crazy people which make those people who are quote unquote crazy uh, valuable contributors to society. Um, and no one, what is normal? No one's normal. But my question to that is like, do you have to have silver linings to be valuable contributors to society? Can you just be? Yeah. Do you have a little bit of crazy? Does it have to have a special gift or talent? Can you? Yeah. And and yeah, like I guess the the movie is trying to juxtapose um, Pat, who has this official diagnosis, with all the other people in his life life who who don't have a label but mm. who are equally unusual and i think we're supposed to be like well pat's actually the sanest person in the film yeah we we are totally meant to feel that way yeah um but robert de niro nearly bankrupt bankrupt <laughs> like renders him homeless like and, what is he contributing to society and that's what i'm saying quote unquote craziness these people need help yeah <laughs> hey robert de niro needs a, a di- well i don't know if a diagnosis necessarily help him, but he needs some help yeah um you know, he needs to be taken away from the book bookie situation. Yeah. <laughs> Pronto. And like, yeah, it's it's awesome that um Pat and Tiffany they, they don't abide by these social norms. They're really you know, they ask awkward questions and, and maybe we would all benefit from being more open and honest with each other, um, and, and asking hard questions. But you don't get to just throw a book out a window. <laughs> you, you don't get to just barge into people's rooms and yell at them in the middle of the night. You don't get to be violent with people. Um, and yeah, those get are the things. Yeah, you don't consequences for any of those things. No. Yeah. yeah, you don't get to stalk your ex-wife. Um, and there's even that bit in the... I didn't talk about it. There's even that bit in the film where he's, like, going to find her and the music's really empowering and it's real cool rock music and we're supposed to be like yeah pat you go get yeah. your wife it's like yeah like this rock montage and it's like violating my restraining order this Gonna is really be cool one of those dudes who ends up being on the news for killing their wife yeah totally um yeah so and i think that's 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 the line where um you know people have to be like oh psychiatrists are just treating you know people who society thinks is weird to no, psychiatrists are treating that highly dysfunctional, dangerous behaviour. Yeah, and um, preventing it from turning into a death. Yeah, yeah, that, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so that's when these everyone's a little crazy sort of things fall apart. I agree. Um, and, yeah, like, you know, maybe that's helpful to an extent, but um, it's not always safe to just let somebody with bipolar just like it's making fun making light of someone who almost killed Mm. somebody yeah 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 and i will just put my film hat on and just say like if you're telling a story you've got to up the stakes and you know yeah he needs to do something violent and serious and that that gets us invested yeah um but taking that off in real life no (laughs) <laughs> you have to do something about that behavior yeah he doesn't and that's yeah that's the biggest most harmful thing in it for me is that he doesn't actually get a strategy apart from fall in love yeah and do some dancing and there are no consequences 
Um, and I, I know we were supposed to be talking about helpful, but we're talking about Yeah, sorry. I, we're just, yeah. I think, especially for Robert De Niro too, like he, he almost completely made their family destitute. Um, he could have gone to, I don't know, fraud jail. I'm not sure where. Debtor's jail. Debtor's jail. Like, um. <laughs> like in, in the, Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens. <laughs> <Yeah>. Um. <laughs> what did, who, he, who went to debtor's jail? His dad. Was it Charles, Charles Dickens? Dickens' dad. Yeah, right. But he instead is reinforced all of that, all of his little rituals and, you know, severe OCD um, and gambling addiction is reinforced by the fact that they ended up winning the parlay. And you see in, you know, the last sort of montage of the film that he's back at it again. So it's like, it should be called the OCD enabling playbook because (laughs) everyone just enables him to carry on and it's probably even more making it more severe and strengthened all these you know uh quite dysfunctional thoughts and behaviors yeah, yeah. they could lose the house like well like yeah he's just had season. massive massive positive feedback yeah, like endorphins huge. reward circuit overload and what's next and he's and it's an addiction thoughts in his head yeah that this equals this equals they will win and i will get money which is not True. And being an addiction, you gain tolerance to the, yeah. the high. So the next stunt would be even riskier. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so all of the really serious effects of the characters' mental illnesses are really rewarded more than anything. Hugely. Um, yeah. There's also two things that are really harmful about this movie. It's usually body shaming. Hmm. Because um, oh, about his weight, and, yeah, yeah. His wife really wanted him to lose weight, so he loses a lot of weight, and then he garbage bag on, so he sweats more to continue losing the weight. Mm. And like, why? It's got nothing to do with mental illness. Like, medication can be life saving and often makes you put on weight. So why did that have to be a thing mm. in the movie? Mm. Didn't like that at all. Maybe if it, I mean, I know everybody hates this, but exercise does help mood issues oh yeah i have no problem with the exercise part of it it's the weight side of it yeah 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 yeah. that that's what i mean maybe if they reframed it in that it would be a little bit less nasty yeah and also it's extremely misogynistic yeah um yeah the women are just like props to help him through i don't understand why his wife shows up to the dance and is like looking properly you know he, he look she looks really hopeful and it seems like she actually is thinking about reconciling um not only does it kind of reinforce his what we thought were delusions that she that they were going to get back together but they're just she's just sitting sitting like i feel like all the women in this film are like sitting around waiting to be chosen yeah like jennifer law J- jennifer law um j-law j-law it's just waiting to be chosen by him and just yeah. waiting for him to realise he's in love with her. Yeah, he's just got his pick of... All the women. All the women. Yeah, and then... Because know, he lost mom, the weight. Because he lost the weight, yeah. And then his mum is just sitting around waiting for the house to be <laughs> taken away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're all super passive. And then the worst part of the misogyny in it is that um, the scene where she starts screaming in the middle, when he starts slut-shaming her... And then she starts screaming in the middle of the, of the street, he's harassing me, and everyone tells him to back off. And it becomes like like a scene where you're like, oh, no, he didn't do anything wrong, and everyone's blaming him, and it was her. Yeah. And, which is such a blame-the-victim, rape-culture-y bullshit thing. And then once she sort of takes pity on him because he's having a panic attack and 
and then tells the police, no, he's fine. Um, the policeman asks her to get a drink sometime with her. Mm. It's just so gross. Yeah. So gross. I think it's meant to be funny. It was not funny to me. No, and it wasn't <laughs> funny. Um, but that's the only... I can't really explain why they did that, other than it was meant to be funny. Or like, was he trying to be, like, real deep about it? Like, you know, this is the way people see women, but those same people who will think that, um, you know, they're protecting her from rape or will go and, and, you know, be rapey themselves and be inappropriate and ask her for a drink. Maybe. But I don't think he thought that deeply. I thought it was just like, I'm a dick. He's just a, I think, I don't like David or Russell. <laughs> Russell or David. Russell Davidson. And even at the beginning, Tiffany's there to, like, help. Like, she's a grieving widow. What is she doing just sitting around, like, deciding to help Pat? Like, doesn't she? Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit of a shamoz. It's a shamoz. It's a bit of a Dr. Shamozberg. I'll just, should I finish off this section and talking about all the ways this film was helpful? Yeah, all right. <laughs> so, like I said before, unfortunately for my feelings, a lot of people liked this movie from um, mental illness advocacy groups. It made some progress in the efforts in Congress to reform mental health laws and the healthcare system. Um, the filmmakers and the cast went to Capitol Hill to help assist in that sort of advocacy. In 2013, David O. Russell visited Washington, D.C. to meet with Joe Biden. He was vice president at the time to discuss a new bill regarding mental health care um, and was at a pal- panel in the Palais Center for the Media, which discussed projects which brought to light the stigmas and suffering associated with mental illness. And in an interview with David O. Russell at IndieWire, he says that he's building a postgraduate program for kids who are not college-bound but want to work their way into internships and professions. So instead of... I think his, his son was going to do that. So, he, you know, he didn't go to um, college, but he's going to do a postgraduate year to get into, like, a theatre program. So, yeah, it sounds like he's doing some good stuff with this movie. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it kind of just sounds to me like that corporate social activism type thing where like they know they're doing shit but they try and put a band-aid over it um and like yeah it's an awesome photo op they're they're all at fucking congress or whatever the fuck and i know i'm you know i could be that parent myself one day but i'm always a little bit nervous about when an advocacy group is parents of of kids with that illness yeah don't actually always speak for the person who has the illness. Yeah, totally. Um, they can get it wrong sometimes. One billion percent, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, I guess if you think about, you know, the good that just the existence of the film has wrought, like, from a purely utilitarian perspective, it's a bit like Rain Man. Like, yeah, yeah cool. It raised awareness. We talk about it did it some good. We didn't before. But I don't think looking at the movie alone, like the movie itself on its merits, just the text, mm. um, I, I don't think that's sufficient. I agree. It sounds like Matthew Quick got lots of really good praise for his book um, before this came out and he said that he's had lots of people who shared their stories and said that the book made them realise they need medication, they need therapy. And it's, the book itself helped start the conversation about mental illness. And I think that that's what this movie itself 
could be seen as a good place to start the conversation. Yeah. and, and, but, the, and but it's too Hollywood for me to like it. Well, I, what I was just about to say is that maybe the, they've, they've, you know, sugarcoated it with these Hollywoody type things to make mm. it easier for a, a bigger audience to swallow. Yeah. Because, you know, Touch With Fire, you know, that's not going to get played at your local Hoyt's. Watch me. <laughs> in 3D. No. <laughs> There's no McDonald's toys, yeah. you know. It doesn't get a look in at the Oscars. Yeah. It's, it wants an indie film, but um, most indie films don't, no matter what they're about. Mm. But yeah, you're right. Sometimes we need Hollywood to start the conversation and then we'll finish it with some better shit. Yeah. Are we ready to tally up? Are we ready? Accurate. Lived experience. Lived experience. I reckon half a point. Yep. A quarter of a point. A quarter of a point. <laughs> do we do that? I don't know. I'm just like, I'm just sus. It's, yeah, I'm it's a bit. It's a bit him. weird. It's kind of there. He it could also just be arrogant. a cute story to justify making the movie and to avoid a little bit of criticism for not actually having any lived experience. Yeah, and like you know, they didn't have anyone with bipolar actually in this movie apart from his son, who is the inspiration for making the movie, which, like, of course then, you should have your son on a bare minimum, dude. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it loses a lot of points for that. Um, accuracy? I don't... I don't think we can give it a point. Because if we look at it objectively, it's not an accurate depiction of bipolar, as we know it. And yeah. bipolar treatment and what works. Yeah, that's true. Like, yes, he meets criteria for bipolar. Maybe. I can only say that, really. Yeah. But also, it just doesn't quite ring true to me. Yeah, it's it's not... Um, a lot of people say that this movie um, felt really real to them. Okay. And people with bipolar. So yeah. I can't really say it from my own perspective, but if we look objectively at what we see, I don't think it meets the criteria. I don't think it gets a point for this. I, I think what you say about the, the accuracy of the treatment, Is like true. that's... That's very, that's highly inaccurate. You don't just fall in love and do a dance competition and get better. And maybe I'm overly simplifying things there. But well, there's just so, still so much in the movie that's would be huge triggers, I think, for Pat, like his dad. <laughs> still being his dad. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he's just, like, decided, okay, I'm not going to be with my... Like, he's fallen out of that delusion so quickly mm. that I don't trust that all those things aren't going to trigger another episode of mania yeah yeah zero fuck yeah stereotypes zero fuck yeah don't love the stereotypes in this movie yeah and helpful or harmful Mm. oh it's a Ah. tricky one it sounds like it has been helpful like in terms of the impact it's made and the conversations that it's provided it actually has been helpful look i'll concede it has been helpful but i i think it's it's a step in the direction. Yeah. This, the stereotypes, to me, are overall harmful. But, yeah, like, in, in terms of the real-world impact, I guess it's been helpful. I guess so. <laughs> so, all right, you get your star. You get your star. Which Ross. means it's got 1.25 points out of 4. Which is, I don't know if you guys saw the 2021 wrap-up, that's actually a, quite a high score. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. 
But I, I like that we're being a bit more clear with our points because there was a few on there that it's like, I don't know, yeah, what yeah. did we actually decide? Yeah, when when <laughs> I have to get five on, poos. when I have to go on Photoshop in December this year to tally up all our scores, it'll make it easier. Oh, I can't wait. I wonder how many we'll have done by then. Mm. 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 All right. Well, thank you for our first episode back for a while. Yeah, welcome back. Look, yeah. look forward to um, Married at First Sight oh, recaps. Oh, I missed it, Shanana. I wonder what happened. No, just some bullshit couple got married again. <laughs> um, thank you so much for listening. Make sure you follow me on Instagram, as we already said. If you'd like to support our Patreon, there's heaps of bonus episodes on there from the last year, and we'll have more to come. There's so much. We've got heaps of Patreon space. Yeah. There's come room. and take there's up vacancy. the space. Come. Yeah, you're all welcome. Mm. Um, and, yeah, send us an email if you have any ideas. Join our Facebook group. And if you've got lived experience, hit us up. Also, follow me on TikTok. I've got some rants on there now. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Bye.